Welcome to Inappropriate Earl. <laughs> 272 episodes in. That's awesome. 272? I, you know, I thought of quitting several times. <laughs> Don't do it. Not You're too far down the road. You got to see it through. It's the only thing from stopping me. Is I'm, I'm, there's no plan B in the podcast world for me. I've only gone mobile one other time. Really? And that's for another man named Rob, the great Deuce Bigelow. Oh, Rob Schneider. Schneider. Very nice. Robin Williams had passed, and they were friends, and he said, bring your gear. And I'm like, Rob, I don't know how to do this mobile. He, I won't say what he said exactly, but he's like, bring your effing gear. And uh, my second mobile podcast is with Rob Riggle. That's awesome. I love it. I actually knew Robin Williams, too. I, I uh, performed with him at the Upright Citizen Brigade one night. We did improv together, and then we did some USO stuff together, and yeah, it was very sad when he passed because he's one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if he did his material all the time. It was other people's material. <laughs> but didn't he got he got to a point, though, where, yeah, I knew that was probably a problem for him, but he would pay for everything he took, right? Uh, at the end, he did. Like, okay. I think he got enough, uh, enough flack. Yeah. Pardon my language. Yeah, yeah, but, no, but he got, yeah, he got a lot of flack. But I at, the, at some point, he made the turn where he... He was paying for everything he took. <laughs> I'll give him this. He did what Carlos Mencia never did, was which was pay people for his uh, for their work. Right. Carlos just took. Wow. Uh, and I saw it firsthand. Did you really? He would sit in the back of the comedy store during the open mic, and everyone was like, uh, what's Carlos Mencia uh, doing here at Potluck, which is the comedy store's open mic? Uh-huh. And you could tell he was just listening to everyone. And then the next week, you'd hear a bit that an open micer did told much funnier by Carlos because he is a great performer uh-huh. and you'd be like, Oh, that's what he was doing there last week. Wow. That's just, that's just overt. Well, it wasn't until Joe Rogan in the very famous, uh, I thought Marin didn't Marin call him out a little bit. Uh, Rogan was the first one to literally storm the stage while Carlos, whose real name is Ned, uh, he's Honduran. He's not even Mexican. Uh, basically, he said, you're stealing jokes from my friends. You you have to stop. And it was got real awkward, and there's a very famous YouTube uh, clip. Oh, I think I do remember that. I yeah, do. Brian Redband, who uh, produces Joe's podcast, just by fate, had a camera with him. And uh, someone said, hey, you should tape this. And it's all caught on tape, and it's really fascinating. Was, did that go down at the comedy store? Where did that yeah, go? That, that went down at the comedy store in the original room. Wow. And uh, it got Joe pretty much banned from the comedy store because they had to take one of their sides, and uh, Mitzi and the, the store decided to take Well, you, yeah, you know, listen, I that's a tricky one because I don't think you should storm anybody's stage. Well, uh, Joe is, I guess, I guess you'd call him a comics. But I, but I don't think he's wrong. I just don't know, you know, as far as the comics were having to make their decision. It was tough because they're both big comics. Sure. Fear Factor was was pretty big at the time. And yeah. uh, the mind of Mencia was on yeah. Comedy Central was big. So it's like, wow, we're going to burn a bridge no matter what we do. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as you know, joke stealing in uh, the comedy world is taboo. It's literally the equivalent of being labeled a pedophile. Yeah. It's just it's the one thing comics won't stand you know. it, it is it's it's a it's bad form it's about as bad as it gets in the comedy world yeah it's just it's yeah. wrong well i you know how i avoided that when i was doing stand-up i just made everything about my stories 
Right. You know, you, you, I can't steal your own stories. Yeah, you have a unique. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, uh, and that's the safest way to do it. You're one of the few comics who've actually served. Uh, <laughs> and it's the only time I will bring up your service. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Very I nice. Mean, I mean, 23 years. Yeah. Uh, that's, I'd be the worst soldier on the planet. <laughs> I would literally be pushing people in front of me. Hey, they're over there. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You'd actually be pretty good at it, other than the fact that you can't stand authority. Well, I, I stand up for myself, which uh, I don't know if uh, that would fly in the Army or Navy or yeah. Marines. Uh, and I'm in good gym shape, but yeah. like I can only imagine the shape that you had to be in. Oh, it was a long time ago. Now I'm in, my shape is round. You're in so. great shape. And we're the same age. You're younger than me. Yeah. In full disclosure. <laughs> I'm 50, still trying to get on new faces at Montreal. That's awesome. Well, it might be a little late in the game. And you do, you clearly work out. Well, I used to be a lot bigger. Really? Uh, like bigger how? Bigger muscular. Buff or bigger, oh, muscular. Never did steroids, but I was... Uh, you were jacked. Go ahead and I say was. it. You were jacked. I was, uh, I had horrible form. Like I could bench press 315, but I would get scoliosis doing it like i had ho horrific form yeah but 315 that's like nfl stuff well you know in the nfl combine the you know the the big bench press is how many times you could do 225, 225 yeah and those guys forms are per even the guy who had one arm missing had perfect or one uh he had the uh yeah, he's missing the hand he had i mean he i think set the record uh, 39 Lord. times Oh, 39 reps at and, 225 is insane but their form is just beautiful yeah uh, well you're former. a tall guy too and tall guys we have we have to extend so much further than the short stocky guys yeah like when we do pull-ups it's a long pull like you have long arms the short guys they jump up on the bar to do a pull-up and they just ding, 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 like a rabbit just, just jacking them out you know ding, 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 ding. and we have the long pulls yeah, I mean, I, you know i'm not muscular because it's, it's my arms my limbs are too long <laughs> So my minute bowl was never, uh, you know, the seven foot seven. Yeah, one hundred and seventy pounds. Yeah, he was. I think he was one seventy seven foot seven. Yeah, and uh, but he was a great three point shooter. Yeah, he couldn't miss. He was shooting down on the thing. <laughs> See, this is how great Rob is. We're talking about minute bowl four minutes into the podcast. It's it's going to get the numbers up. Talk about it. Nobody knows what we're talking about. But that's. I mean, we're the same age, you know. So like. I know you're a big wrestling fan. Yeah. And you got, to, you know, back when we watched wrestling as kids, there was no internet. No. And it was scary because Rowdy Roddy Piper, when he would grab a microphone from somebody or start a fight on set, it was terrifying because he was crazy. Oh, I uh, co-hosted his podcast with him. Believe Did you me. really? Well, and, and it gets a little bit to a sad area. Oh. Um I, I think uh, the effects of 40 years of taking chair shots might have been getting... I all those guys. I, it, that movie, remember the one uh, Mickey Rourke the played? The wrestler. I think that's very apropos to their world. Well, I sat next to Roddy, and this is before I knew him, at the screening in uh, at Beverly Hills that, that one they do all the screenings at, yeah. and he was crying. I'm sure he was, because that hits so close to home for all those guys. It has to. Well, yeah, I mean, most a, a lot of them die before 50. Uh, you know, my favorite Rick Rude, who, who was, uh, he was just the best bad guy. Uh, Iron Sheik. Iron Sheik. Such a classic bad guy and funny. Oh, he's and funny. Uh, he's crazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Certifiable. They all are. They all got to screw loose a little bit. 
Well, we did the Iron Sheik's roast uh, at the comedy store, and uh, his manager was like, hey, uh, I know you're a big wrestling fan. If you dress up as the ultimate warrior, yeah. the Sheik will think it's him. And I'm like, you're crazy. He's not that stupid. Yeah. So I dressed up as the warrior, face paint, you know, the arm tassels, the, yeah. the speedos. <laughs> and I walked backstage, and the Iron Sheik, who was in frail health, uh, he went up to fight me. Like, he thought I was the ultimate warrior. And I, lo- I did not look like the ultimate warrior you looked enough to fool the sheik i looked like the ultimate warrior maybe 12 years old like, oh my gosh so but but you know back when we were kids like you know now you could look up uh whoever a popular wrestler is and you get their wikipedia page and it's like dolph ziggler his real name is not dolph ziggler right it, it is what it is and yeah. it's from here like rick flair yeah all these you know guys. he's from charlotte yeah you know i thought kamala the ugandan giant was from Uganda. <laughs> right. Well, because it's their persona and they sell it so well. But you you know, and now and this you, is all before internet. This was right. all before the information age. So So you took you you took what you were fed. Yeah, I mean, you I had no thought, choice. Uh, Abdullah the butcher was from the Sudan. Yeah. Cuz that's where he was <laughs> being portrayed as and he's from Atlanta. Yeah. And there was some Russian too wasn't uh, there Kolov yeah uh, Nikita some, Kolov yeah and so you just believed it he was some sort of defector yeah <laughs> you know? but, but, but that's what made it so great was yeah. you know you really thought they hated each other I mean the Iron Sheik was actually from Iran yeah he was uh, the bodyguard to the Shah of Iran oh my gosh so you know nowadays these guys are just bodybuilders or yeah. uh, you know you know they're not you know they're just models almost doing you know, ballet. Yeah, doing acrobatics. Um, do you remember the wrestlers you saw? At, uh, yeah, because we had local wrestlers. So, like, Bulldog Bob Brown, uh, Dusty Rhodes. Uh, you know, Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream. He had a lisp. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. My brother. <laughs> he would do and he was very flamboyant. He was very flashy. Uh, and But he had that great accent. Um, yeah, those are the those are the guys that were on whatever circuit they were on. Those are the guys that came through Kansas City a lot. Right. Uh, now then, it turned into a whole nother thing with when Hulk and Rowdy and some of these guys came on the scene. It got elevated, you know. And when Mean Gene would interview you, you know, those guys were all the guys uh, that were in the Cindy Lauper video. Uh, oh sure, you know, Lou all, Albano, Lou Albano, all those guys. Those were the you know those were the. It was during that time. So what would that have been? 83, 84? I think that's when wrestling kind of hit its peak. I think uh, Hulk Hogan uh, beat the Iron Sheik at Madison Square Garden. And I think in, <laughs> this is why I haven't made it in comedy. I know all this stuff. Uh, in late 82, and then uh, Hulkamania came yeah. fruition in 84. Yeah, and, and, and 83 was when Rocky 3, or 82 was when Rocky 3 came out, and Hulk played Thunderlips, the ultimate male. All right. And and that got him, you know, the the nationwide global exposure where people were like, who is this guy who's seven foot, that buff, and he was he looked like this Nordic god, you know, with the blonde amazing. hair, and he was he was at his absolute most buff, and he was fascinating. He it, just like Mr. T was fascinating, you know. Sure. Everyone to know more about this person with the mohawk and the golds and all that. Same thing with Thunderlips. Uh, you wanted to know more about him, and and so that early 80s to me was the beginning of the golden age oh sure of uh, wrestling because i thought they were you know you come from a, a, a ucb background and, and uh, so you're an actor you're an actual yeah. actor i thought the wrestlers back then were better actors <laughs> than the ones 
today. Like, yes. I told Roddy Piper, I used to hate you. Yeah. I feared him. He got scared or he got sad because he, he said, why did you hate me? I'm like, you were so evil and mean that I believed it. When you hit Superfly Snuka yeah. to coconut, which might have been a bit on the racial. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, they did some things. That, Overtone there. Uh, well, I mean, you look at how uh, African-American uh, wrestlers were uh, portrayed uh-huh. in the uh, 80s. Yeah. You know, the junkyard dog. Yeah. Um, you know, who came to the ring and uh, all fours with the dog collar. Kamala yeah. was a savage uh, who couldn't speak English. Uh, Slick the pimp. Well, they played into stereotypes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they played into them. But the uh, uh, I, I, I do agree with you. I think they were, they committed to their right. characters. And I was scared of Rowdy. He scared me. Like I was like, that guy's not. He's not right. And I mean, and he's mean, and he's evil, and he's bad. He's a bad guy. Like I don't. And he was so unpredictable. Like I was. I was always afraid for Mean Gene. I thought he was going to hurt the 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 reporters. You know, I thought they were going to hurt Mean Gene. Uh, that's how good they were, and that's how much I I, I bought into it because they committed so hard to their characters. Well, Mean Gene was like the perfect straight man. He's perfect. Like he would set these guys up and just not say a word. Yeah. And like Jesse the Body Ventura, he would he would always set up with these lines about, <laughs> you know, his celebrity friends at Plato's Retreat, which was like a, a sex club in New yeah. York. And uh, well, that's why I think Mean Gene was so good because he would have been outstanding in improv, right? Because he fed people's games, like whatever your game was, he would feed it. So if you're the Iron Sheik and and you hate you know, America or whatever, he would say something like. Iron Sheik, you know, are you are you ready to wrestle on the Fourth of July? You right. know, I hear you scheduled a date to wrestle on the Fourth of July in Milwaukee. Again, teeing him up so he could say something terrible about America. You know, right? And that's just that's good straight man. That's just good improv. That's that's how you feed the game. And he well, was a master at it. I got kicked out of the groundlings level one, so <laughs> wasn't really. Uh... Now, how'd you get kicked out? Was it attitude? Was it? Did you get in a fight with the instructor? Well, the instructor was very bitter, and I get it. Like, we're all not where we want to be. Sure. Maybe except for you. No, oh, oh, it never ends, by the way. There's no finish line. Right. There's no That's finish how line. I think of it. Yeah, there's no finish line. I, uh, when I got fired from Saturday Night Live, I realized, oh, well, that's over. Now I got to find another gig. Like, it's it just... You, there's no finish line. You're always grinding. You're always searching. Even the A-list people, the, 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 well, maybe not Clooney, <laughs> but you know, people that you would think wouldn't think or have it, or you think that have it made, they're out there competing with other people. They're competing with other A-listers to try and get that great script or to try and get that great opportunity sure. or work with that great director. Uh, so it, it never ends. The grind never ends. Oh no, I love it. Yeah. You know, after 20 years, I'm pretty dead inside. So <laughs> Uh, just a shell am i looking at a shell oh yeah I'm a, i started 20 years ago thinking oh i, I booked my first two now this is about you but yeah. just it's neat for me to be in a room with someone who's you know you've achieved a lot in this business hopefully uh and more to come but uh you know i i booked my first two national commercials and i nice. thought oh this business is easy like i'm literally gonna you know, I'll audition a few times. I'll get a, get a few, not get a few, and then win 15 years with nothing. I mean, thank you, Rob Schneider, for picking me up <laughs> off my boots. Because, uh, you know, I know we were talking about 
you know, opening comics oh. and headliners. And, yeah. and Rob was always very good to me. Yeah. And it showed me a good side of the business. Absolutely. Unlike the instructor from the Groundlings who yeah. showed me the, oh, wow, this guy's better. I'm not casting your movies that you're not getting. Like, don't get mad at me. Yeah. Uh, which I'm, I loved uh, improv. Like, mm-hmm. I gained a lot from it. So yeah. I'm just sorry, my experience was. Well, good. I, I think it's good. I think if you're going to be a comedian, um, you you got to have uh, all the spokes on the wheel, meaning, you know, you need to be able to do stand up. You need to be able to do improv. You need to be able to do comedic acting, character work, um, and, and you need to be able to write. And I think those, those are the spokes on the comedy wheel and, and some you're better at, but you need to be able to do them all. Oh, for sure. Now, you know, my writing process is very bizarre. I have to have the TV on. I listen listen to, you know, all the political channels just to, that's comedy to me. Uh-huh. Just how their hatred of each other. Like, it's like a roast battle between Fox News and CNN <laughs> and MSNBC's in there too. Uh, but I have iTunes on with 80s metal blast in a way all at the same time. What What is your writing process? My writing process is be it for films or your stand up. It it uh, it honestly for stand up it's um, sometimes it's premise based and most of the time though it's it's personal stories that I heighten. Um, not necessarily uh, lie or fabricate, but heighten. You right. know, a little exaggeration here and there for comedic purposes, but um, that and also. Uh, sometimes it's it comes in the weirdest muse it comes in the weirdest places whether it's a conversation or a bit uh, uh, some part of a, a TV show or a movie someone says an interesting line that makes me think about it kind of spirals off of that right and then that'll be the genesis for an idea and then I'll go from there so generally that's how it works so I would imagine- in improv you just never have a plan you just get up there and it's a lot of reacting. But at the same time, you know, you, you, you have to feed, you can't just, you have to feed the beast. If you're in the scene, you gotta, you gotta contribute. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So uh, but but, your but, background is, yeah. uh, unlike any, I mean, I know there's been comics who've served in the military, mm-hmm. but I would imagine 23 years in the military, you ran across some characters. Yeah. Yes. A lot. And it's funny cause I, I ran across a lot of, uh, authority figures Right. and, most of the characters I play are authority figures, whether it's a dad, a coach, a cop, a lot of cops, um, or a military man, or but it's usually some authority figure. And most of the authority of figures I knew, I knew great ones. I knew good leaders and, and good ones, but I also knew a lot of douchebags and a lot of guys that were um, blowhards and you know were, had a big egos and thought they were king turd of shit mountain or whatever and and so it's an amalgam a lot of the characters i play uh are these uh in charge douchebags uh, or idiots and so I, I draw on my personal experience whether it's from the military or an old high school football coach or some guy i know from improv or some you know you meet you meet them all through your life i remember i used to get embarrassed when i would meet awkward people and i would Honestly, I would look away or I would put my head down or I would evade the conversation or I would try to get away because I didn't like being uncomfortable because they made me uncomfortable. Right. And then I got to a point where 
I stopped doing that and started embracing the uncomfortable conversations or the awkward person or the person who's being a big, loud jerk, you know, someone who stands up, you know, like the dad in the stands that's, you know, causing a scene, you know, that I used to get embarrassed for them. So I would try I would just leave or get away from it or try to change the, or start a conversation with someone. So I didn't have to be in that awkward uncomfortableness. And I stopped doing that and I started observing them and soaking it up like a biscuit on gravy, just soak it up because I wanted to remember everything and all their mannerisms, the things they said, the intensity with which they said it, because to me it was a character study. And then I would take that and, and use it uh, at auditions or when, you know, I got a character and, uh, and so it actually helped a lot, but it was hard. It was hard for me to overcome that. <laughs> like, did you ever come across someone like a Sergeant Carter from Gomer Pyle? Like someone like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember, yeah, I would, oh, you'd always come across guys that were hard asses, you know, that, that got off on being in the military, you know, it was, it was all they had. Um, and so they got off on it and they got off on their authority. Um, I remember I got chewed out. I was a Lieutenant and I, we were on some training exercise down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. And this army captain just read me the riot act about something that I had no control over. It wasn't my problem. He was just pissed off and, things weren't going on schedule or whatever. And I just happened to be there and I was junior in rank to him. So he thought he would give me a ration of shit. And I remember it was the first time I, I had been dressed down uh, rather aggressively. Right. And I realized what a douchebag he was. So it didn't bother me. Like I didn't get nervous at all. I wasn't sweating it. You know, I wasn't like, Oh God, I'm in trouble. I got to get, cause normally I would probably take it personally or take it to heart. But I remember just kind of standing there and observing him. And thinking, wow, this guy's just out of control because he had no right to be that mad and no right to give me that ration of shit. But I remember, and I just distinctly remember, we were standing outside of a bus. <laughs> I remember it was, and we were on a dirt road and he was just letting me have it. And I just didn't bat an eye and my pulse didn't increase. And I remember thinking, what a fucking joke this guy is. And uh, when he was done, he realized what a douchebag he was and he calmed down and it was like, Oh, um, listen, I'm sorry, Lieutenant. I, she was a, I was like, Oh, it's fine. You know, I was like, oh, whatever. You're an idiot. But I soaked it up. Now, has that helped you deal with the, uh, let's just say certain volatile personalities in Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's weird. Uh, I, uh, I learned, I, I, you know, you get advice from all kinds of, of people you work with and stuff. And I just never allowed anybody else's problems or baggage or, attitude to affect what I do, which is not easy. It's so much easier said than done. But if someone's being an ass or someone's having a fit or someone is causing all kinds of trouble on set, you know, it can be distracting and it can throw you off your, your game. It can throw you off of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, but all you can do then is just leave it to the producers and the director to handle that. And you just stay within your own shell and work on you. And work on what you're responsible for because everybody's responsible for something on a set and i know when i get on set i'm responsible for my character and what he does in the scene and how he does it that's what i'm responsible for and if i can crack wise and improvise a little bit and do something that that enhances the scene or makes it more enjoyable i'll try it but uh, if they like it they'll keep it if they don't they'll tell me don't do it again <laughs> And I won't do it again, but I, you know, that's, that's what I'm responsible for. I'm not responsible for the other actors do them doing their job. I'll help them. I'll, I'm there for them. I want to be a team player and a collaborator. Uh, but if they're having a fit, I can't do anything about that. 
Now, you've had a long career in Hollywood. By Hollywood standards, yes. Well, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. mean, most people don't do a percentage of what you do. Uh, when was the first time you thought, I've made it? Not, or when was like, there's a light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, I remember the first bite, I guess, at the Apple. The first time I got I got something that I thought, wow, this just had Jim Brewer was doing a pilot for Comedy Central. And he was it was a sketch show and he was loosely basing it on Carol Burnett's show, where he was the centerpiece, right. but he had like four cast members. And it was me. I went through the whole audition process, like multiple auditions, callbacks, you know, the whole thing. And I got it. And I was stoked. And it was me, Seth Morris uh, from the UCB, a great guy, a great comedian, very funny actor. Tony Hale, uh, who arrested development, Veep, you know, you've seen him on all movies. Uh, and then, uh, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on her name. It was another cast member. A female type, um, and she was more of an actress, and she had been in a lot of teen movies. Um, but it was so that was it. It was uh, the three guys, a girl, and then Jim, and we shot the pilot in New York, and uh, it, you know we all had a blast. It was fun, and we did some funny sketches. Jim killed it, I thought, uh, but the pilot didn't get picked up. You know, just didn't go. I think it tested fifty fifty. <laughs> you either loved him or you didn't. And, but that was the first time I felt like, oh, I can, I got that. I, you know, like I just got a, I got a gig, you know? So I made it through the gauntlet finally. And I'd been doing improv for uh, at the UCB for seven years. And, you know, I, you, you don't get paid for improv. You just get stage time. I so, know. Yeah. <laughs> so I never got paid a dime, but I did get what I would consider a master's in improv and sketch, you know, doing that, that time. Um, and you make a lot of connections and you meet a lot of people. Then the next gig I got, um, was Saturday Night Live. And so that to me, you know, I was as green as it comes, you know, I was, I couldn't have been any more green and I got that gig and it was like drinking out of a fire hose because I was the only guy hired that year. Um, so I'm the only new guy on the cast and there's already a cast of 15 and everybody else's, they're all fighting for airtime. And here's one new straggler, uh, you know, another white guy on the show and you know, where does he fit in? So I, it was, uh, uh, but that, but that's when I, I did, I had a feeling like, oh, well not everybody gets on Saturday Night Live. So I thought, well, maybe I can, I can, I can do this. I can, I can do this, but, um, I didn't know how or what. You never know. You just you just go do, and you hope you get a gig. You hope it goes well. You hope it lasts a long time because every gig ends, and then you got to get a new gig. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, but isn't uh, SNL have a a strenuous audition process? Like you get you have to jump through the hoops yeah. to see how bad you want it. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's uh, it's it's scary. Uh, you know, they only bring in about let's call it fifteen comedians um and from everywhere toronto chicago new york vegas la you know they, they go they they go all around and they they bring in and you you got to be recommended you know because lauren walks around goes mm, who should i be looking at who should i be looking at and people on the cast and the writers are like oh you got to check out this guy and you got to check out this guy and so he'll he'll kind of does that little roundup 
And then you go, you, you go to New York and, uh, they don't tell, they don't tell you, um, the first night you, you get to do, if you're a stand up, you do your best five to seven minutes, whatever it is, your call. But if you're a stand up, you do your best five to seven minutes. If you are an improviser, um, you do three characters, original and three impersonations. So six characters about, you know, and you probably do a minute to a minute and a half for each character monologue. Right. And, um, so they bring you all to New York and then about an hour before the show, they call you and they tell you where it is because they don't want the New York guys stacking the crowd with all their friends. And, you know, going crazy, you know, over their stuff, even if it's not that great. Right. So at the last minute, they give you one hour. They call you one hour before. So I I would just go sit in a coffee shop and wait so I could go outside and get a cab real quick. Um, And so you sit there and they call and they say, all right, uh, it's going to be at uh, the comic strip live on the Upper East Side, 82nd and 3rd or 82nd and 2nd. Okay. And, you know, you go out and you jump into the thing and you go and you get there and everybody's converging and uh, you get a number and you put it in the hat. They mix it up and everybody, you know, they draw out the first one and they go, all right, uh, Riggle, number one, which is exactly what happened to me. I was the first one up. I was like, motherfucker, no, I don't want to be the first one up. The crowd's going to be cold and I'm doing, I'm not doing stand up, you know, I'm doing characters and this is, uh, I need a warm crowd. I don't want to do this sucks. I can't believe I'm the first one. Uh, so I, that's the, that's the lot you got. So I, I, I had to go up first and, you know, Lauren Michaels, Tina Fey, Higgins, uh, Shoemaker, you know, all the whole head shed of SNL is sitting in the back booth and you can see him cause it's all lit up. And then the crowd is there and it's just a regular crowd. It's a, it's a regular Thursday night crowd, you know, and, and, uh, I couldn't stack it. I didn't have time to call everybody. I'm too nervous with my own shit. Um, so I got up and I did my characters and I did my, and I'm not in it. I don't do impersonations, So I do characterizations, you know, and, uh, there's a whole math, there's a whole madness to that. I think like I wanted to show, you want to show them everything. You want to show them that you can do anything, right? So you try to do these weird characters and grounded characters and obnoxious. And then, you know, your impersonations are like me characterizations. So I was like, Oh God, I don't know who I'm going to do. So I was like, I'll do Toby Keith, you know, cause I was big, I was a lot bigger at the time and it's a Southern accent, right? Or a hillbilly accent. All right. So that's easy. And then I remember Jeremy Shockey that very week had gotten in trouble because he said something, uh, you know, anti-gay or he said something about gay people that wasn't flattering. And, and so he got, he got, he was made the headlines that week because it was during training camp. It was in August. And, uh, uh, so I, I, I threw on a blonde wig and a Jeremy Shockey jersey, right? And now I'm Jeremy Shockey. Well, no one knows how Shockey talks. No one, so I get to just be Shockey. Right. And, and so you create characters and you do, and those were my characterizations or whatever. But I remember I got done and it happened so fast. Like seven minutes is over. 
you know, you, you know what it's like on stage. Seven minutes, it's gone. And then you walk off stage and you're kind of shell-shocked and you, and you think they laughed, and you, you know, and then, you know, everybody out in the in the bar area is all the other comedians, all the other 15 comedians getting ready. So they're not going to give you any love. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, none at all, right? They're going to be like, they're like, what happened up there? You know, like, what? Was it that bad? I, Jesus Christ. So I came off and I sat down and I just ordered a beer and like drank it in one second and then uh, I'm trying to calm down. You leave, everybody gets up and does their bits. You leave, everybody leaves. Everybody go home, go home. And then you you either get the call or you don't. And so of the 15, they'll call five. And they'll say, hey, you did a good job. We wanna see you tomorrow at 30 Rock at, at Studio 8H. So I got the call and I was like, oh, that's fantastic. So uh, I went to uh, 30 Rock the next day, 8H. And they take you up. Uh, they they put you in a they put you in one of the dressing rooms of the cast members. So I remember I was in like uh, Horatio Sands dressing room or whatever, you know. Yeah, and I was like, okay, this is cool. And um, and you're just by yourself. You're just sitting in a room by yourself, kind of sweating it out. And they put everybody in dressing rooms. Then they come and get you. And they come and the stage manager and a sound guy and they they put a wire on you and you start walking from the dressing room to the stage. And, uh, as you're walking, they say, okay, listen, you got to cut it down to about four minutes as you're walking to the set. And you're like, oh shit. So what am I going to cut? Because it's like a song. I've, you know, I got this thing down like a song. I, I it's going to be hard to cut out the middle of the song and, oh geez. And it's stressful. And I think it's built in. I think that's why they do it. Right. Uh, to see how you handle it. Because if you're going to be on live TV, shit happens all the time uh, on that show. I mean, the, the band goes too long in the second song, so they had to cut. This actually happened to me in one show. They had, it was a thing of scene with Jason Bateman. Uh, the band went too long, and but it, they didn't go long enough so they could run extra commercials. So they we had to do a sketch, but we had to do a condensed version of the last sketch. So as I'm walking to set, they said, hey, we had to change the last sketch. We cut a bunch of stuff. Don't worry about it. The changes are on the cards. And we're back in four, three, two, and boom. Now I'm on live television. This is going live to the nation with a, like a seven-second delay, but I, I'm still, it's live to the nation, and I'm sitting there uh, uh, going, uh, oh, my God. I, I, and they're flipping the cue cards, and everybody's got different color codes, right? So the star is always in black, and uh, you know everybody else has colors, red, brown, green, blue, purple, and depending on what, and so you always remember like, oh, I'm purple. So as they flip the cards, you know, you're like, oh, there's a purple line and, and you got to read it off the thing because, oh, that's not what, it, that's not what it used to be. Or that's not, you know, that wasn't the lead in line isn't changed or so it, it's, it's intense, you know, it's an intense work environment, but you walk out, I walked out and they said, yeah, cut it down. And then you stand on stage where the host comes out. They have a camera on you because all the NBC executives in Burbank are watching. So now you're, you're, you're performing for a Lauren team, the same people that you performed for last night. Uh, they're all sitting right in front. Um, you got a cameraman and you got the state and the floor director and that's it. And then all the executives in Burbank that you can't see. And Lauren comes up and goes, very nice job. You know, last night it was really entertaining. Uh, do you have any questions? And you go, no, I don't think so. And he goes, okay, great. Just, uh, you know, have fun with it. And then he goes and sits down and somebody, a friend, had told me, listen, if you get to the second part, don't sweat it. They saw you last night. They know what you're going to say. They know your jokes. They know the punchlines. They're not going to laugh. So don't sweat it when they don't laugh. 
And I'm like, oh, okay, that's good to know. I don't care who you are. You drop that first joke and there's nothing but silence. Your adrenaline kicks in and your heartbeat starts to go through the roof and you start speeding up and you start racing through your material instead of letting it breathe and hitting the moments and, you know, being into your character. It's the hardest thing to do. And the people in Burbank hadn't seen your material. Right. So you got to remember that. And it's, it's hard because when you're playing for a silent room, now I was blessed that the stage uh, director, who was this very sweet lady um, and the cameraman, God bless them. They were giving me something, you know, they were, they were, they were, I could see them like laughing and I could see them, you know, their bodies chuckling or whatever. So that calmed me down a little bit, but it still sucks to play to a silent room. <laughs> I've done that many times. <laughs> Did it last night, actually. Uh, and then and then you get done, and they say thank you very much, and you walk off. They take your wire. You get your you get you know whatever you your bag, and you go to the elevator, and you're out on the street. And then you're sitting on the street, going, "What just happened? It's over! Holy shit!" You know, and and about a week later, you get a call, or you don't get a call. And uh, I was very fortunate. I got a call and it was very presidential. Is this Rob Riggle? Yes. Please stand by for a call from Lauren Michaels. <laughs> I was like, shit. All right. And then Lauren got on. Mm, yeah, Rob. Hey, listen, we loved what you did. Uh, really original, really fun. Uh, and we were wondering if you'd like to join the cast this year. Yeah. Fuck yeah. You know, that's awesome. And that's how it happened. Now, as a new cast member, how much uh, leeway are you given into bringing in ideas? Like, I can imagine it's pretty brutal to get. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, you're you're the new you're the new kid, and the and and uh, um, you're take you're you're a potential threat because you're taking up real estate potentially of people who have been there for a year or two, and everybody's trying to just catch their stride. Everybody's trying to get a break. Everybody's trying to get their uh, signature character on. Um, I will say though, the cast to the cast credit, whenever we did table reads, everybody in the cast committed to the table read. No one ever sandbagged a reading. You know what I mean? Right. So like if, um, you know, cause there's like 50 sketches you got to read through to pick 10, you know, right. and you can tell on the first page if the sketch is going anywhere or not. And then if it's a turd, you still got five pages left <laughs> to read. Right. And, and, but no one ever like, you know, if they're like, Hey Rob, I need you to, you know, be a coach, you know, you gotta be loud or whatever. So I'd be like, oh, 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 and I would, I would commit and everybody else did it too. Like it didn't matter if Amy Poehler committed, uh, uh, Parnell, you know, every cast member committed to every sketch they read. So no one, I never felt like anybody ever sandbagged anybody's efforts. You know what I mean? Sure. Which was great. Uh, the writers, that was different. You know, they would laugh hard at their stuff and they wouldn't laugh for other stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Like your impression, some of your impressions, like Howard Dean, yeah. uh, Mark McGuire, uh, <laughs> Did you bring those to the table or were they written for you? They were written for me. Yeah. Just because, yeah. I mean, you're a big guy. Yeah. I'm assuming someone said, hey, you, you could play Mark McGuire. Yeah. You're the only guy in this cast. Right. Like, you could play McGuire. I don't know why they let me do Howard Dean. Uh, maybe because I, I could scream. I could see Cause that. Because that was, when, that was when he screwed up and went, ah! Yeah. Yes, did that Yahoo scream. Yeah, with the arm pump and everything. So, I don't know. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, it was a tricky, it's a tricky place. It was a tricky, and for someone as green as I was, I mean, I was green. I really was. I didn't know anything. Uh, you know, I pretty much, I was from Kansas and the military and, you know, you say what you mean and you mean what you say in those places. And that's not necessarily true in show business. <laughs> and so I, I found out the hard way a lot of times that people would say things and I, I took it to heart and I shouldn't have. So. Because they really have no competition outside of, uh, for a few years, Mad TV. Right. As far as late night sketch, yeah, there's no there's so the nothing. pressure, I would imagine. Yeah. And at that time, it was an iconic show. You know, it was it hit icon status. Oh, sure. You know, um, and so it had been around for 30 years and, and, and or 35 years, I think. Who knows? But And now it's up to 45 years, you know. So it's it's crazy. It's It's really... It is an iconic show. And what the one thing that is cool, I will say, I had a very short tour on there, very short um, lifespan on that show. Two seasons? One. One season. Um, but I think in the history of the show, in the 45 years of the show, there's only been like 130-something cast, mem- right. cast members. And as you walk down, because the offices are on the 17th floor, and as you walk down the, the 17th floor, uh, there, every, every cast member's individual headshot is on the wall, lining that whole long hallway. And it is kind of cool. You walk down, and it is the pantheon of American comedy. You go, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You just see all these people that you've watched for years in movie and television. And some people you forgot. You know, like, oh, my God, I totally forgot this guy was on the show. Like, Ben Stiller was on SNL for six months. His picture's on the wall. And I was like, Stella, when was he? Oh, shit, that's right. He did have he did have sure. a season. And, and then you go down and you see people that were on the show for three or four years that you never heard from again. I yeah. mean, utterly vanished. Uh, and so, but it doesn't matter. They, you know, they're on that wall and it is cool. Uh, you go down there and it, it's, it's fun. It's, it's, it's a neat, it's a neat little uh, fraternity to be part of. I have, I, I had a short time on there. Um, and I have zero regrets about it because it was one of the coolest things I ever got to do. And it was a dream come true. So even though I didn't get to do what I wanted to do and I don't, I wish I would have had at least one more year to do it my way. Um, I'm still incredibly grateful that I got the opportunity to do it. Now, when you leave the show, is there a feeling like, Oh my God, what, what's next? I mean, yeah, it's terrifying. Again, that was my naivete is I thought naively, Oh, we make it on this show, you know, you're golden, you know, now, now I just got to sit back and decide what projects I'm going to take on and all this stuff. And it was, it was, that's how green I was. That's how foolish I was. I didn't understand anything until they let you go. And then all of a sudden it hits you like a slap in the face. Cause I had a, a wife and a child that I'm trying to provide for. And now I don't, I'm unemployed. Uh, and so I'm like, Oh God, uh, what am I going to do? I got to find a new, I got to find another job. I got to find another, a new gig. And so, uh, I, I went back to work. I, I ended up, uh, uh, immediately following that. I tried to audition for some shows. It didn't, I didn't get it. Um, and then, uh, I, I got a deal with NBC to write a pilot. Rob Hubel and I, uh, wrote a pilot for, uh, for them, not to even star in. We just wrote them a pilot, right. uh, and they didn't get picked up. Um, but we, we got paid 
a little bit and we had to split it. That's all that matters. <laughs> exactly. It was a paycheck. It was a paycheck and we were writing again and, and Rob and I came up doing comedy together. We did a two man show and so uh, it was fun. I love writing with him. Uh, we have a good time. So that was the first job and then, um, but yeah, it got, it got scary there for a while. I actually, um, had I not gotten the daily show, cause it, about a year went by before I got the daily show from SNL to the daily show. It took about a year for me to get that job. That's a long year. It is a long year. It's a long, scary year. It's a long, painful year, but, and, and we were kind of hitting the end of our funds. Um, and it was getting, it was getting desperate and to the point where, uh, it was the height of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I was, uh, at the time I was a major in the Marine reserves and, um, I'd already been called back once in the beginning of the war. Uh, but I, I knew they needed people. Um, uh, so if I had not gotten the daily show, I was going to go back on active duty. I was going to, you know, have to go back on active duty. And, uh, it was that, that's how desperate it had become. And, and, uh, so I was very grateful that I got the daily show and I didn't have to go back on active duty. Well, cause I don't think people, uh, your fans yeah. and just comedy voyeurs realize you, you get turned down for a lot of things, even if you're famous Yeah, uh, all the time. And how do you, cause, uh, I'm, I'm going to take it to a bit of a sad sure. place, sure, sure. but I, I'm actually trying to be serious for once. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've done comedy for 20 years and probably known 10 comics actors who've uh who are no longer with us yeah because they just couldn't uh the rejection just got to them and mm-hmm. and you know i know we recently lost uh, a great friend and brody yeah. stevens who you know uh, on the surface you would look at brody and go everyone loves him yeah he's friends with a-list stars the, you know you and zach alfagnakis and, and bradley cooper and he's uh audience warm-up gigs had paid very nicely and yeah. he was in the hangover and and he still got you know so sad that he couldn't bear it how, how do you how did you deal with the rejection of like you just said my god i have a wife and a kid i yeah i mean that year and even past that like i think well right right when i got fired from snl i'm not gonna lie i had i i was crushed i i was crushed it hurt deeply Cause it is, it's, you know, it feels like a rejection of you and, and your comedy and everything. And, and then you're mad at yourself because you, you didn't do it the way you wanted to do it. Like I tried to please 20 masters and I didn't please anybody. And that's impossible. To it's do. impossible to do that. And I should have just done what, what got me there, but I didn't, I strayed from that because I was trying to please everybody. I, you know, I wanted Tina to be happy and I wanted Higgins to be happy and I wanted Shoemaker to be happy and I wanted Seth Meyers to be, you know, I'm trying to please everybody and it just doesn't work. And, and, but what a great lesson. I did learn that lesson, but I did, I took about a, a, I took about a 15 minute, really good pity party when I got the news, um, and felt really sorry for myself. And, but then you got to shake that off, especially when you're a dad, you know, you, you have a, you have responsibilities, so you don't have time to sit around and feel bad for yourself. And I had a, I have a, I had a, I had a great wife, have a great wife that, that, um, you know, she, she was very supportive and very much like, Hey, it's okay. We, you know, on, on to the next thing. It's good. It's good. And you know, that, that always helps to have people in your corner. Um, but yeah, you don't, you, you, you can't sit around and feel sorry for yourself. You got to move on to the next thing. That's why I always say there's no finish line in showbiz. There's no time ever. If you go into a life of the arts, there's no time ever 
unless you're Bob Newhart or unless you're, you know, Don Rickles, where you, you've done 50 years, you, you have financial independence and, and your work is admired. That's when you've hit the finish line. Then you can, then you can say, then you can retire and say, well, I've, I've had a wonderful career and now I'm going to relax. Other than that, and that's how many people is that? That's like what a handful of people in this under ten, right? <laughs> under ten. So it's rare. Like there's no finish line in show business. It's you just have to keep grinding. You go from one gig, and you hope you get a good one, and you hope you do a good job so that it lasts as long as possible. But that you got to know it's going to end, and then you have to find another gig. And um, for some people, they find it. For some people, they don't. Uh, if you have like, you know, the, the folks on modern family, they're going to do 11 seasons of modern family, you know, and who knows if they'll go on, some of them will go on and do more. Some of them won't, but they, you know, I think they probably made lifetime money on that show. So maybe they don't have to right? with syndication and everything. So good for them, but it's, it, it never ends. It never ends. You, you, you have to find a gig. And, and the thing is too, you got to do a good job when you get the opportunity, you got to, it's like a final exam. When you get the, when you get the opportunity, you got to capitalize, you got to make the most of that opportunity. And then if you did a good enough job, you get more opportunities. You don't get more gigs. You get more opportunities at gigs and you still got to go land them. And then you got to capitalize again and you have, it's like you constantly have to keep winning to keep, keep yourself in the game. And it's a, it's a grind and it's exhausting and it's fatiguing and it wears you out emotionally, mentally, physically, in every way possible. Mm. Not to rain on anybody's parade. If you want to go into a life in the arts, it's very satisfying. You meet great people. Uh, and it, it, if it's your calling, you got to do it. You just got to do it. But I think it helps to hear, you know, I could talk about being bitter about, certain shows I was on that uh, might not have treated me that nicely Yeah, that I helped find. But uh, <laughs> it, it helps that, you know, me, I just thought this guy's just an unknown, better comic. Uh, but someone of your level, and I'm not trying to kiss your ass, yeah. but, you know, you're successful. Even you get, you know, uh, let go from SNL or yeah. a, a, maybe a movie script you pitched it didn't get, you know, and, and yeah. you're, on, you're on top of it, mm-hmm. you know, and... You know, I just want people to see that even successful people get yeah, the uh, short end of the stick. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's it's a cruel business for anybody, whether you're just coming into it or whether you've been in it for 15 years. It it's a cruel business, um, but it's not it's not all bad. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I mean, you you the you get to laugh with funny people all day and all night, and there is a community. There is a comedy community. Um, and, and as sad as it was, uh, at, at Brody's, um, memorial, it was, it was nice to see all those faces and all those people turn out because they, we do care about each other on some level. Um, you hate to see anything happen. It's, uh, it is, it's a small community. The comedy community is a small community. Well, that was just amazing to see so many comics of so many different levels of, uh, I don't know, fame's the right word, but, uh, you know, to see like you and Bradley Cooper and then Boon Shakalaka, the homeless open micer, <laughs> all of us crying. Yeah. And and laughing. Yeah. Uh so the even though it was a sad event, like you said, it was kind of uh I don't know if cool's the right word, but uh special. It's neat to see everyone. It, absolutely. I I loved looking around that room. And I'd seen faces I hadn't seen in years. Right. You know, and it was nice. It was uh-huh. really nice. Well, I'm cutting into your family time, so I wanna end Yeah. 
on a happy note. Good. I took it to, you know, com- comedy's a dark place. It is. It is, absolutely. Uh, you, you know, we talk about certain people, you know, like I'm a fan of the show The White Shadow. Oh, yeah. To me, it's one of the most innovative shows that's ever been on TV. Yeah. Given the time frame. Sure. It was ahead of its time. You know, I'm I'm bummed out more people don't know about it. Uh, just because, you know, they went, to, covered rape, abortion. Yeah. Uh, there was one uh, episode where there was a gay player and he switched to Carver High. They went to go play pickup. Think how ahead of the, I mean, this is a show in the late 70s, early 80s. 78 to 81. Yeah. And, and yeah, think about, think about how far ahead of its time, those topics and the yeah. the conversations they took on. Because it was only uh, back then, I'm dating myself, uh, there's only three networks, <laughs> CBS. Yeah. NBC and ABC. NBC and I think uh, that's PBS maybe. Yeah. Uh, but we talk about like half that cast went on to be huge directors, uh, Salami. Yeah. Uh, well, the coach, the coach went on to be president of SAG. Yeah. Uh, I, want, <laughs> I want to call him uh, Ken Reeves. It's Ken Howard. Ken Howard, yeah. Uh, but uh, Timothy Van Patten, uh, who was Salami, my favorite character. He did most of the Sopranos. Yeah. And uh, Kevin Hooks, who played Thorpe. Uh, <laughs> he's like a big director producer. But then the other half, not the, I mean, you know, they're gone. You know, you're absolutely right. That show doesn't get nearly. That's. I think you just came up with a really good documentary. Well, after the dirt, uh, I don't want to ruin that movie for you because I know you haven't seen it. That yeah. was, uh, I don't know who did the fact checking on the dirt. I think it was like Ray Charles. It's uh, <laughs> a lot of boo-boos. Uh, but that was like uh, the White Shadow. Uh, was like an ensemble all in the family, uh-huh. like just the, the racial things they went over. And, yeah. and uh, But you're right, though. Like half the cast was went on to be big and behind the scenes. And then the other half was uh, like, where's Goldstein? <laughs> um, but to take it to a happier place, to end on a happier place, I am wearing a Kiss t-shirt. This is my first concert I ever went to. Yeah. Hot in the Shade Tour, Long Beach Arena. <laughs> with the That's awesome. Crying at such a ridiculous concert. <laughs> it was uh, Slaughter, Winger, and Kiss. Uh, now I know in Kansas, that was a hubbub for metal. Yeah. You know, like Judas Priest did a a live, uh, concert video there. Uh, what was your first concert? My first concert was, um, Motley Crue shout at the devil tour opening for Ozzy Osbourne bark at the moon, which I get chills. You saying that because my favorite guitar player, in the whole time of Ozzy's, uh-huh. he's had a few guitar players. It was Jake Ely, who uh, he didn't last too long. It's <laughs> some issues. Uh, but yeah, he. Does Ozzy go through lead guitarist like Spinal Tap goes through drummers? Yes. I mean, well, Jake, uh, Jake, like I know him, <laughs> uh, he stood up for himself. You know, he wrote all the music for Bark at the Moon and then his next album, The Ultimate Sin. Yeah. I can hear. Uh, viewers leaving as I, <laughs> going through Ozzy's mid eighties uh, category, which was when he looked like B Arthur. Yeah. Uh, it was a tough time. He was a little bloated at that time. Well, you know, Randy Rhodes died. Yeah. And then I think Sharon didn't want him at home. Yeah. So we're going to get you out. Yeah. And then, uh, he, they went through a few guitar. They went through three guitar players in two weeks. <sighs> Brad Gillis from night Ranger. Really? Uh, I don't think I knew that. He was the, I'm like I said, Rob, I'm full of useless information. <laughs> uh, 
he uh, was the only one who could learn Randy Rhodes. Uh, you know, Randy Rhodes is very uh, he's legendary. The flying V, the yeah. polka dot flying V was every kid had to have one, man. Classically trained. Yeah. Uh, he was like. Beethoven of yeah. metal guitar players. And well, still that riff in, in in Crazy Train. Yeah, it's one of the greatest heavy metal yeah. riffs of all time. Yeah, he, he was uh, ahead of his time. Yeah, he was like the white shadow of guitar players. <laughs> uh, Brad Gillis was the only one on a week's notice who they auditioned several guys, but he didn't fit. Like there's a uh, concert called Speak of the Devil, which is the only. Uh, video footage of Brad Gillis with Ozzy and you just see people flipping him off because really? he wasn't Randy Rose. Sure. Um, not his fault. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, not, not his fault. The guy died because the uh, pilot was trying to get uh, back at his uh, ex-girlfriend who was sleeping in one of the uh, tour buses. He's like, I'm going to buzz her bus. And Randy Rose is like, oh, I'd love to go with you. And, uh, you know. That's crazy. Uh, but that was uh, Jakey e. Lee then they found him and uh, he lasted. He stood, he's like, well, I'm writing all this music. I want to be paid appropriately. And yeah. they're like, all right, we'll just get someone else. So it's a cold business being yeah. an employee of the Osborne. The, the business of show is tough. It's cold and music comedy. Uh, so uh, what were some of the other concerts you saw? Cause that w like was a central hub for every big band to play. Yeah. You know, uh, um, I remember the 1984 tour Van Halen. Uh, they did two shows, January tw or June 20th and June 21st, 1984. And uh, I remember them well because I went to both. Um, uh, I remember going and see Triumph. Oh wow! I saw Triumph uh, and Mountain open for him. Oh wow! Leslie um, West and Mountain. Yeah, and I remember. Um, uh, I remember what. Kiss, you ever see Kiss roll through town? I never saw Kiss. I wish I would have. I wish I would have. Um, ACDC um, came through. Um, Def Leppard, I couldn't get tickets. I was too young also, I think. I don't think I, for the Pyromania. And then when Hysteria came out, um, I don't think they came through Kansas City. I think, the, I think the closest they came was either St. Louis or Denver. Right. Uh so I didn't get to see those, but I do remember when I, I went to, I went to some heavy metal show. It might've been the first one. It might've been shout at the devil, bark at the moon. It, um, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm prepubescent. I'm, and I'm little and I'm scared because everybody there has got long hair sure. and they're, they look like bikers and they're kind of mean and they have teenagers have full mustaches and it was just scary. And I remember, um, I didn't drink and I didn't smoke weed or anything, but me and my buddy, we were just seventh graders, you know, and we're terrified. So we were, we were just nervous and scared. But back then in the eighties in Kansas, a 12 year old could go buy smokes. <laughs> so we went up to the concession. We got two Cokes and a pack of Winston's and we just started smoking cigarettes. So we, people thought we were tough and it was pathetic, but it was, it was the only way we could be edgy, you know, and, and we, we didn't even know how to do it right. It was just awful. Um, but that's, that's how we tried to maintain our edge. Yeah. But you saw prime Van Halen. We did. Uh, unfortunately for me, the first time I saw Van Halen was in 2012, uh, when cool and the gang opened for them. Uh, oh my gosh. It's a great story. Cause, uh, David Lee Roth wanted cool them. The it did not fit on paper. You would think this is not going to fit. Yeah. Uh, 
but uh, the rest of the band was like, well, we don't want them. They're not going to set us up. You talk about going into a, a warm or hot crowd. Yeah. And uh, David Lee Roth was like, I'm not doing the shows unless they're our opening band. So they were like, if you want them, you're going to pay for them. And he paid for Cool and the Gang to open up that leg of the tour. And you forget how many songs Cool and the Gang, oh, they got how some many songs. hits. Yeah, they got some songs. And you, just to see all these white people, I mean, let's be honest, Van Halen is a, a primarily white sure, fan base. Absolutely. Uh, like dancing to Celebration and <laughs> Johanna. And then Van Halen comes out and, uh, you know, Eddie looks like the mom from Throw Mama from the Train. <laughs> David Lee Roth has turned into Liberace. Uh, the worst. And then his Eddie's son is now the bass player. But yet you still heard Michael Anthony's vocals. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, but... Rob, I just want to say thank you. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. No, I really, like, I'm cutting into your family time. We're in Rob's palatial estate. <laughs> the wife and kids are home. He did a podcast before this, Riggles Picks, uh, with the, can I say who it was with? Yeah. I don't want to, with the drummer from Steel Panther, uh, Stick Sedenia. <laughs> I don't know if that's his real name. <laughs> But uh, not that you need my help on social media. <laughs> I actually hope you uh, retweet this podcast several times. Absolutely. Where can people find you? I know you need more followers. Yeah, it's uh, real simple. At Rob Riggle on everything. And at Riggle's Picks. Uh, yep, and at Riggle's Picks as well uh, on, on Insta. So, yeah. And Twitter. Which is a great podcast Rob does with uh, a woman who embarrassed me on uh, national TV. Oh, no. <laughs> Sarah Tiana, my uh, roast battle nemesis. Oh, yeah, she does it She's to me every week. You know, I was so scared to battle her. Uh, I was like, well, I can't. You know, roast battle, it, it's not really my sense of humor. That, that's not mine either. I'm not a roaster uh, battler. But you did a Comedy Central roast of... Of Rob Lowe. I did. And I enjoyed it, and it was fun, and I, it was great. But, yeah, I'm I, like some people just do it automatically. Like, I needed prep time, you know. But I think because of your UCB background, uh, you'd be quite good at roast battle. And I don't suggest you do it. <laughs> it's really rough. It's rough. It's rough. Well, you have to, it's basically skilled bullying. Yeah. You have to call someone fat or yeah. you know, a whore. Or, yeah. You know, uh, other words we won't get into, but uh, I really thank you, one, for your service to this country. I appreciate I, it. And I really, I'm not trying to kiss your ass. Yeah, yeah. Chandler will tell you I'm <laughs> 20 years in, I'm a horrible ass kisser. But uh, thank you very much for doing this. No, dude, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun. This has been Inappropriate Earl on <laughs> Apple Podcasts. I've been telling people we're on iTunes. iTunes is no longer a thing. No wonder I get eight views. Uh, uh, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you guys very much. Rate, review, listen, subscribe, and follow Rob Riggle. Thanks, guys. Yeah.